Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Chuck Geddes, founder of Complex Trauma Resources, for part one of a discussion on children and complex trauma. Part two will be released on August 16th. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and I am excited, as always, to bring you another interview for the podcast today. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about today's guest. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Chuck Geddes. He is a psychologist who has written a book called Children and Complex Trauma, a road map for healing and recovery. He has worked extensively in the field of children and youth mental health and child welfare for over 25 years and completed his PhD at Colorado State University. He's also done a great deal of work in Canada where he has lived at various times. He became interested in the role of complex trauma in children's neurological development through the work of Bruce Perry, Dan Siegel, and Dan Hughes. He's the founder of the Complex Trauma Resources in British Columbia, Canada, and he has worked extensively with children in the foster care system and adopted children through that program. He trains social workers, foster parents, and mental health clinicians across British Columbia, and also now in Arizona through an agency called Christian Family Care. And I think you're really going to enjoy what he has to share with us. His book has multiple chapters on how attachment relates to complex trauma and to understanding children. So we're going to be able to take a dive into some of that. So please stay tuned and Dr. Geddes will be with us in just a minute. Dr. Geddes, thank you for joining us here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time. Yes. So I shared with listeners before you joined me here a bit about your background, more so your professional background. But I often like to ask our guests a more personal story if, if they would like to share one about how they got involved in this work. And I wondered if you might be able to share some of that with our listeners. Okay, uh, well, we'll go way back to my first year at university and like everyone else trying to sort of sort out where I wanted to go. And uh, at that point, I was interested in sports and psychology and the kind of uh, how to use uh, psychology to help in sports performance. Um, I took some psychology courses and hated it. And so I ended up sort of thinking I might go in a different direction. And then my father, who was a clinical counselor, uh, gave me a book called The Family Crucible. It's kind of a classic in family therapy. And uh, when I read that book, I felt like my head kind of exploded in a good way with sort of excitement and interest because of the complexity of the family systems and of how to um, how families got into difficulty and then what it took 
what it would take to help them get out of it. And I, I really like that sort of strategic side of it. I loved um, playing games and sort of strategic games. And I, and I felt like this, um, this understanding of the family just kind of gave me this strategic perspective, which then combined with the family values of helping. And I felt like, oh, I could be really interested in this. Yes. Yes. And so the psychology, like this, so the straight up psychology was, was not the thing that caught your attention. It was the family systems idea. And, but then you went on to become a psychologist. So I want to hear more about this story. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So went through, uh, completed a PhD in psychology at Colorado state and um, went up into British Columbia back, back home to British Columbia, where I was working in community mental health, which is what I had always wanted to do and working with children and families, particularly. And, you know, through the years, we just got uh, more and more children uh, coming to us out of foster care, out of adoption, whether that's international adoption or, or adoption out of foster care. And I realized that we didn't we weren't being effective with those kids often, and the traditional types of therapies we were using weren't helping. And uh, that's when I was introduced to the work of Dr. Bruce Perry and Dan Siegel and Daniel Hughes, and and I, I felt like I had another one of these kind of big aha moments. Was oh, there's this incredible complexity going on here with these kids, based on neurological development, based on. Uh, attachment injuries and it just kind of transformed my um, my thinking and it, it really sort of led me down the path of thinking how do we sort of step back understand this problem and approach it differently yes yes and I, I think uh, I can relate to that as well as a lot of our listeners of certain children that you may have been seeing particularly if you worked in the child welfare system or in some kind of situation where children had experienced a lot of trauma, we found ourselves scratching our heads like, you know, am I getting anywhere? Do the tools that I have, are they helping? Are they effective? Yes, exactly. And there was a frustration building with the uh, the the managers and the child welfare side, they were coming to child youth mental health. We're often housed together and just kind of part of the same organization. And they said, you're not helping us with our kids. And we realized that many of our child youth mental health centers actually excluded children with big externalizing behaviors, which was so many of the kids that were in foster care. And so these, this high risk population, we weren't serving really because our therapists were trained in, in CBT for anxiety and CBT for depression. And they just didn't have sort of the tools to work with, again, these very complex children. So what would happen then? They would just say, we, we can't help a child with those problems or, I mean, what, yes, what would Yes, in too many places, that's exactly what happened. The kids were just not offered services. And so then the families would continue to struggle and, you know, all the, all the sort of poor outcomes that we can get through foster care uh, would often help happen for those kids. And so the, there was a, kind of an entreaty at that point, I guess, from the child welfare side to say, mental health, please help us. You need to figure something out to help us. And uh, that's when I looked to this work of Bruce Perry and and Child Trauma Academy and and Daniel Hughes and thought, what should we do differently? How could we approach this problem differently to 
be able to serve these kids. And, um, and so that's when our, we, we developed something called the Complex Care and Intervention Program. It was back, this wasn't uh, that long after the developmental trauma disorder proposal had gone in for the DSM-5 and mm-hmm. was rejected. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was that, it, that this idea of complex trauma or complex developmental trauma, it was so clear in the lives of our kids. I thought yes. we were eventually going to end up with that diagnosis. I'm going to act now as if we have that diagnosis to work with. What would we do if we were, if we had that to work with? Yes. And, and we ended up developing uh, a, a model based around this, what we call our seven developmental domains, but looking at the symptom clusters that were involved with developmental trauma disorder and saying, what would that, so what would that look like? What's that look like in our kids? And can we capture that in a, in an assessment, a sort of developmental functional assessment that would uh, guide our interventions across our, again, seven developmental domains that we looked at? Yes. And well, before you go into that, I did have one question related to what you've already shared. And I don't know if it was like this in Canada, but in the United States, there was also an outcry, particularly from adoptive parents um, who were saying your services aren't helping us. So there was a lot of energy from the caregiver parent side of things at times it almost felt that they were racing ahead of the the, the professionals. And I just, mm. in terms of reading and gaining new information out of their desperation to, to find some, you know, something that worked. So was there anything going on that side of things from the parent caregiver perspective that comes to mind or not so much? Uh, you know, I think any any caregivers that were searching like that and desperate for answers, they were looking to the U.S. We we weren't generating in Canada. I don't think we were generating answers, and so they would be hearing pieces of this from the U.S., but then be frustrated and trying to find those similar kinds of services in Canada. Something that was more, um, I, I guess, around adoption. There's always been this understanding that attachment is such an important part of that. So I think there's lots of good attachment therapists in Canada, but the idea of this kind of the, the layering also of these complex neurologic problems on top of that and the hyperarousal attack around the attachment that that was missing. In fact, yes. we, the, um, you know, a lot of the push within child welfare in Canada is about, um, it's kind of val- a value-based system, I would say, as opposed to a science-based system. And so the value is, um, kids need permanency. Therefore let's push kids out into adoptive homes. So in British Columbia, we've, um, there's really been a, a big push in the past two years to get kids out to adoptive homes or out to kinship care homes, but with no training and preparation for those families. And so that that desperation that you're talking about, they get these kids and then all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, typical parenting's not working and this is incredibly stressful. It, the, the adoption's not working and help, you know, just crying out for help. Yes, yes. Now, you also began talking about this functional assessment, and I think that listeners would be interested in hearing more about that. Could you could you share about some of that and how that came along and how that has helped you? You know, I think I just want to make a tie-in back to my sort of strategic thinking. <laughs> so yes. I guess my thought was, how do we start to change the system? So the system is oblivious 
about complex trauma. Basically, we, you know, everybody's had a little bit of training about trauma, but in terms of how we, the system actually functions, it's pretty oblivious to that. So I was thinking, how do we help kids and also sort of bring the system along in their understanding? And so we we developed this kind of rubric or framework. Um, we actually have an acronym for it. No one eats apples in BC. No one eats apples in BC. And it looks at you know, uh, neurological development. It looks at overreactive stress response, emotional um, emotional regulation, attachment, identity. Um, uh, looks at uh, cognitive behavioral pieces, and then sort of cognitive and language processing. And and so um, so though, and that parallels again those symptom clusters from the the developmental trauma disorder. So we thought, well, let's, what if we looked at kids through that lens and we looked to see what is their level of functional development in each of those categories? And then would we be able to develop interventions that particularly that the caregivers could do, that the parents could do, rather than thinking that this would be the job of the therapist, things that they could be doing in their home that would start to see children grow and develop across those seven developmental domains. And so that that framework um, was also intended to kind of uh, drive the understanding of the system. So our our intention was to go in and say, we're going to work with the team of people around the child. We're going to provide education. We're going to provide this framework and we're going to provide some direction and let's see what happens. Um, let's see if we can get not only changes in the child, but both related to what the caregivers are doing, but also, and the other parts of the system around them, the school teachers and the youth care workers and whoever else is, is interacting with them, but also can we change the decision-making that's happening within our system? So we're kind of aiming to do both of those at once. Mm-hmm. And would you say that the functional assessment mirrors those seven domains of complex trauma that are written about, also written about developmental trauma disorder. Um, You have slightly different names for some of them, but would you say that that pretty much mirrors each other or are there some differences in how you thought about that? Uh, You know, I think it's, I think it's very similar. Um, We were, the one big thing that we really wanted to emphasize, and this was based on what we learned from Dr. Perry, was just that idea of that uh, that hyper arousal that is in our systems when we've experienced that trauma. So that that heightened mm-hmm. sense of threat and and that we needed to do something about that. And so we separated that out all as its own category, partly just to draw attention to it in the minds of the team. Okay. Um, so then we've got this overreactive stress response and we talk about, we've got an um, image we use, talk about a stress staircase and where are our children on this stress staircase as they go up the stress staircase, they're um, you know moving down in the brain into that place where they're poised to move to the fight or flight or freeze response. And so, so just sort of bringing that image, that idea to the teams has been so helpful because oftentimes they don't recognize how stressed the kids are. And yes. then when we can bring that to that uh, their awareness, um, that sort of changes their perspective, but it also allows us to target that in a really specific kind of way. Because if we can't decrease that stress response, change that baseline, then we're not going to be successful. We don't think with lots of the other interventions we try would be trying to do. Yes. And so let's talk about a functional assessment looking at these different domains versus you talk about in the book this 
laundry list of diagnoses that the kids would come in with. And again, I'm, I'm looking at your book specifically right now. I believe it's on page 10. Um, ADHD, reactive attachment disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, juvenile bipolar disorder. I would, you know, in residential, because Chaddock, where I work as residential, you've got conduct disorder thrown in there often because kids have to really act out to end up in residential. And so how would you explain to listeners the difference between looking at a list like this versus your functional assessment? Well, a couple of key differences. So, so number one, the and I and I understand that there's times when you have to make a diagnosis within the yeah, system because of right. insurance for some other reasons. Yes. But what happens for the? I'm thinking about the care team. So this is the you know might be foster parents, adopted parents, whoever the caregivers are. It might even be staff in a residential home and the social worker and the you know the others that are supporting the case and mental health clinician. You know that that list of diagnoses doesn't explain very much. It just says there's all these problems. Right. It doesn't give an explanation for why those things are there and how they relate to each other. And so I think what we tried to do with our functional developmental assessment is to use terminology that would be understandable and usable with the team. They get the concept and they then understand what we need to do as we move forward from that. So the functional developmental assessment, it's a it's like a structured group interview with all the team. And so they're telling us about the child they know. We ask a series of questions. So these are, if you're thinking about sort of symptom clusters, it would be sort of a list of those symptoms that we might see under, let's say, emotion regulation. And um, but at the end of the day, we've, we have this sort of profile graph that gives a bit of a rough estimation of where the child is developmentally compared to where we want them to be. And, and then it gives us a target for our interventions. So we can have children that are dysregulated and showing big behaviors or big emotions for different reasons that might come because they're overwhelmed with sensory information and you know, can't cope. It might be that their attachment wounds are being pricked. They're feeling a threat in their attachment security. And that's why we get it. It might come more from shame. There could be a lot of different sort of reasons why a different child would show these big behaviors. So we have to, we're really trying to use that assessment to help the team to understand, oh, this is why we see what we see. And then here's what we need to do about it. Yes. And, and, and I know you mentioned them earlier, but just to get it clear in the minds of listeners, um, your seven domains, which no one eats apples in BC, um, is helps. Uh, do we call that an acronym or an acrostic? I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> but um, the N is uh, looking at neurological and biological maturity. The O is overreactive stress response. E for emotional regulation. A for attachment and relationships. I for identity development. And B for behavioral regulation. And C from the BC there at the end is cognitive and language development. So those are, those are organized in a way where you're kind of moving up in the brain. So we're starting fairly low level in the brain and moving up, you know, roughly going from these kind of um, basic body functions uh, uh, at the bottom, um, then up into more sort of limbic brain kind of pieces around emotion and, and attachment and identity. And then up finally up to the cognitive, more the cortex kind of, so it's a rough parallel to that. And just for fun, for someone who's oblivious to the area of 
British Columbia. Why is it funny that no one eats apples in British oh. Columbia? <laughs> <laughs> yes, just because uh, we have an area called the Okanagan, which is a hot, dry area where they where there's apples and cherries and peaches and everything like that. So it's uh, yeah, funny for that reason for our audience. Going to need need a new uh, acronym, I guess, if we're in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's great. And so it's very clear that this is looking at things developmentally. You also talk about um, in the book at various places that I believe it was when you were quoting maybe some of the things written by Bruce Perry, efforts are well-intended, but developmentally misinformed. And would would you be able to tease that out a little bit, your own thinking on that? And I mean, we've alluded to why some of these other things don't seem to quite be working, but well-intended, but developmentally misinformed. How How would you articulate that further? Well, I, you know, I think that uh, those caring for kids like this and, and the professionals that are supporting the families that are caring for them, we get fooled by the child's chronological age and their physical size. Yeah. So I think we get fooled by this. We, we, our expectation for what they ought to be able to do is based more on their chronological age. And we adjust it downward a little bit in our thinking because we realize, yeah, they're needing extra supports to cope with school or extra supports to do things. And I think a lot of our caregivers would say, yeah, actually, you know, there's times when it, when he seems to be flipping back and forth between a 10 year old and a three year old. And so there's a sense of that kind of with the team, but I think that, um, one thing that we do with that developmental assessment is we end up with this profile graph and we can visually sort of see the delay or the gaps in where the child's actually able to manage and where we want them to be able to manage, which would be the chronological age. So I have, um, I'm thinking about uh, a team right now. So this is a, a current case where there's a 17 year old, so 17 year old um, girl, and she's been extremely suicidal and uh, anorexic, like trying to harm herself through uh, through restricted eating and through other kind of active ways. So the team, of course, she's 17 and everybody's you know dealing with her as if she's a 17-year-old with all of these problems and how do we manage this and provide safety and, and how do staff, she's in a like a staffed home, how do they interact with her? Well, they're interacting with her like she's a teenager. And then we do the developmental assessment and and the team's reaction is, oh my goodness, she's so far behind. She actually functions much more like a toddler. Not that she doesn't have 17-year-old capacities in some ways, but actually her emotional ability to manage her, her um, response and attachment relationships looks much more like a very young child. And so, what we, so if you think about this kind of developmentally, what's developmentally appropriate then? We're trying to think about how can we meet that child's developmental age down at wherever they got sort of stuck or where their development got, you know, didn't advance past that. How do we go down and meet them at that level? And, and what we see over and over is when we can do that, when we can quiet down the stress response system, when we can meet them at that developmental level, then they start to actually to move forward. Whereas they've been sort of stuck, often kind of stuck there a long time. Yes. You know, I think it's very helpful because sometimes we do share with caregivers a a broad statement like you need, well, we have different ways that we say it at at Chadak. You have to 
parent at their developmental age rather than their chronological age. Another way we mm-hmm. say is you grow them down before you try to grow them up. And, yes. you know, but I think, you know, something that's getting more specific like this, some people just to be able to see that somehow in an assessment more specifically, I think really helps them to hold that in their mind because it's very easy to lose that when, as you said, when you see this older child in front of you that looks, you know, 12, 14, whatever, it's hard to keep that in mind. So I think all the different ways that we can help caregivers or whoever's working with the child to hold on to that concept is really helpful. Yeah, and we are able to use that. I think the, the visual just helps so much. I was been sort of surprised. I told you I come into this with kind of strategic perspective. How do we try to change the system, change the decision making? Well, the visual helps a ton. And the fact that they have been involved in it and they've shared with their observations of the child. So they feel um the caregivers and others on the teams feel very validated by this, that they are in it and kind of empowered rather than sending the child off to some assessment clinic somewhere and the professionals look at them and come back with these recommendations. In this process, they feel they're engaged in it. And it takes the sort of um, general trauma ideas, which they're aware of, and makes it specific now to their particular child. So when we think about that, I, I love those uh, the ways that you describe, uh, Chaddock described that, you know, trying to meet that developmental age. I, one phrase I use is we want to treat them as young as they'll let us. I always, um, I have that written down in my notes because I, that I really liked that. Um, and I was going to bring it up if you didn't. So yay, we're on the hmm. same wavelength here. What I so like. Can I, can I just add, Karen? To, so just yes. think about that 17 year old. So, um, so we start to think really she functions emotionally more like this kind of toddler. What if, you know, how could we meet that need? So what if we kind of imagined ourselves, the staff in this house, what if they imagined themselves as being more like preschool teachers or kindergarten teachers? What would that look like? There's kind of a leading the child through the day, taking them by the hand, lead them through the day quality of an almost a sing-songy kind of thing with games and repetition and stuff like what would what would that look like and how do we do that with a 17 year old guess what she loves it so when we've so we've had to think through what's that you know how can we get away with that and not be insulting and you know um but but actually it's like we're catching that itch that's what she wants that's what she needs and and when we've so we've intruded a bit more because we wanted to go in and not just let her isolate but go in and grab her by the hand and bring her out into activities and she's responding really, really well. And that, so that would be a common kind of experience. I have a, oh, just one other quick story. I have a, had a 12-year-old boy, and we had a, we're doing lots of other things around identity and attachment and stress, but we also added just a little um, positive behavioral system just to get some, so we'd get some sense of, of uh, success, right, and measuring success. Uh, and it, we sat in a care team meeting at one point. He said, Dr. Geddes, you know, this point system you've got me on, this is just, this is like baby-ish. So he's complaining. What was he actually doing when he got these little tickets that he was earning? He couldn't wait to get them. He was counting them out. He was mounting them in a book. He was saving up for certain things that he was going to spend them on, activities that he'd be able to do with staff. Like he loved it. It was developmentally meeting his need, which is probably more like an eight-year-old level. Even though his 12-year-old brain was going, was saying, don't treat me like a baby. Yes, yes. Well, and, and just um, to be sure, listeners are picking up that story correctly 
You're not talking about a behavior modification system, because I think when people hear that, that's what they think of. And and you're clear in the book that you have a whole section in the book of why, you know, behavioral interventions don't work. So maybe highlighting what sounded like a reward or token system, how you were using it differently. So there's no confusion about that. Yeah. So, so the main point would be we absolutely do not use behavioral systems to change behavior. So we're using it for a different purpose. We use it really about identity and to build up that sense of success. Um, so we're looking for, and that's, again, that's layered on top of other things. So this is the thing we do maybe fourth or fifth or yes. thing that we do, right? Not yes. the first thing we do. Yes. Yes. Well, Wow, this has been fascinating so far, and I'm really excited to be able to continue this conversation with you. Listeners, please join us again next week for part two of my interview with Dr. Geddes. We're going to talk about several chapters in his book that directly relate to attachment. So I look forward to continuing this conversation, Dr. Geddes. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 